Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. Joining me after many, many, many requests to to have him come back to the podcast is my dear friend, Felix Zulaf. Uh, Felix appeared on the podcast um, a year or maybe 18 months ago and, and laid out a, f- a phenomenal roadmap for how he thought the world was going to play out with, with ups and downs and uh, switches in asset class and all kinds of things. And, and I've, as I say, I've had so many people ask me, to get him back on, and he's very kindly um, agreed to do that now as we go into the end of 2022. So what better time to evaluate uh, how he thinks the, the picture has shaped out between the last podcast and now, and what he thinks is going to happen in the future. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the great Felix Zulav. Well, Felix, welcome. Uh, it's lovely to have you back on the podcast and, and good to see you virtually after seeing you in person just a week ago. Yeah, that was a very nice uh, getting together. And thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, look, I've, I've had so many people ask me um, when you're going to come back and kind of update your roadmap for the world, because it's been such a phenomenal framework for people to use to think about how the ebbs and flows of markets are going to go over the next number of years. And you know, the last time you were on, we were talking about you know, 23, 24, 25, and here we are, we're almost at the beginning of 2023. And so far, things have played out almost exactly as you suspected they would. So I thought it'd be a perfect time to kick off just to get an updated idea from you as to what you think happens as we move into Q1 2023 and what you think may lie beyond that. Uh, let me first uh, make one step uh, backwards, uh, because I think it's very important to understand the general, the big framework uh, and the changes that are going on in the world. I, I think we are leaving the past 30 years and how the world was, and we are entering a new world. And this new world is uh, a changing world order. Uh, it's a clear divide between the West and the East. It's in the center is the conflict between China and the US. And uh, of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is just a warm up uh, for the conflict uh, between China and the US. And and I think uh, that change that I see forthcoming is dramatic in that we will run short of many items due to disrupted uh, supply chains uh, in commodities, but also in intermediate term goods, because we are leaving the normal stage of a world economy that is fully globalized and working intensely and closely together uh, to a world that is deglobalizing and where supply chains will be disrupted, uh, uh, sometimes uh, sanctions, boycotts, etc., and then playing foul with the other side just to make their heart more dif- their their life more difficult and and that's the new world and and i think the western world uh, you have to divide into two parts uh, the us and north america is in good shape because they are 
self-sufficient in terms of uh, energy and many other raw materials or most of the raw materials, whereas Europe is um, in deep trouble because we do not have enough energy, we do not have the raw materials, and we depend on others. And in the divided world that I see, we also realize that um, Latin America is closer to the eastern side and not the western part of the world. We see that Africa is more tipping to the eastern side. And we also see that recently uh, the Middle East has really moved over to the eastern side with the Saudis, uh, even uh, what I hear, uh, building missiles based on Chinese technologies and things like that and not cooperating with the US when they ask for production increases, they actually even uh, cut production by yep. 2 million barrels. You know, things like that. It's very clear that the Western world is isolating itself. And, uh, and, and that's a bigger problem for Europe than for the US. But still, in the long run, it's a problem for both. And I think you have to look at the economy in a different way, because in the long run, this means, and, and when I say in the long run, I mean this decade, this means that the US dollar will eventually lose its role as a major, as the major and dominating reserve currency. And I think that's very important uh, to understand. And I think um, all those nations that are not uh, close allies of the U.S., they have realized that the U.S. has misused the U.S. dollar and the SWIFT payment system and things like that as a um, economic weapon against others. And therefore, all the other nations must consider other forms of how they store reserves. And I think uh, it will be stuff. It will be uh, raw materials. Uh, they will uh, store um, oil, metals, um, uh, grains, what have you, inside their own borders and not be exposed to the U.S. that can freeze their reserves. And, 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 and this creates a different world because the dollar dominance will still remain, but it will lose a lot of, of its importance. And that makes life for the US more difficult and it will create much more volatility in the global economy, in the global financial markets and particularly in the currency markets. Uh, there is no other alternative to the US dollar as a currency, as a fiat currency. I think the Chinese are working on an alternative that is uh, commodity-based and, uh, and gold will be part of it. And uh, I expect that to come uh, to the surface uh, probably around the middle of this decade. So these will be enormous changes that will go into the history books. And, and when you look at the, the current business cycle, you have to take that into consideration. When we go to the business cycle, uh, we are in a slowdown. We have recession-like uh, situations in many parts of the world. Uh, China is in as deep a recession as in 2008 and 2009. Uh, Europe is in recession. Whether you, you know, don't take those numbers they publish for granted, all of them, uh, the situation is miserable. 
it's really bad. The prosperity of the citizens is going down and not up. Uh, the cost of energy is much higher. Uh, the cost of life, of living, uh, is much higher than it used to be. I just got um, an information for my uh, for my uh, real estate in Germany that uh, the gas bill next year will be 50% higher, and um, uh, that is natural gas, and that electricity will go up by 100%. So this is the situation we are in. I think this slowdown uh, is not well understood because there are a few items that uh, make it difficult to read, particularly the fiscal stimuli that some nations, particularly the US and the UK, gave to their citizens, uh, created so much support for their economies. We do not know when that support finally breaks. We do not know, but when it does, then we will uh, probably wake up in an unpleasant situation. Uh, and I think that could very well be the case in the first half of 23. Um, uh, Europe is in recession. Uh, Japan is, uh, is not doing well. Uh, so Asia is really not doing well. The emerging economies are not doing well. They are struggling because of the strong dollar. Uh, they have to um, sell U.S. dollars, they res reduce their reserves um, uh, to finance their current account, their growing current account deficits. It's, it's a messy situation. And, and the top dog in, in monetary policy is the U.S. Fed. And the U.S. Fed, um, uh, Jay Powell would like to be Paul Walker, and he would like to make a statement and so he runs a very tight uh, policy and he continues. And, and many thought we are close to a pivot because there are rumors that the next um, uh, interest rate hike uh, will be 50, 50 basis points instead of 75. I think that's a wrong, uh, mi that's a misreading by the market. I think we are not there yet and it will take longer. And more importantly than interest rates is the quantity of money. And when you look at the quantity of money that is withdrawn from the system, it is gigantic. Uh, uh, M2 is down in nominal terms year over year. And in real terms, the slump in M2 is the worst since the depression of the 1930s. And, and people do not understand that. When I look at the uh, world US dollar liquidity, it's down over 11% year over year. This is dramatic. It's the worst in many decades. So I think the quantity of money is shrinking. And this has an effect eventually in the, on the economy, but first on the financial markets. And that's what we have gone through as a process. And the question is, when does it end and when does the cycle turn? And uh, quite openly, uh, I do not know, but uh, my guess is that um, I thought it, it, at the beginning, a year ago, I thought it would be in late summer of this year. And then I realized it would take longer and I put it off uh, to uh, late first quarter of 23. But now I have seen that the, the hedge fund consensus is for low in Q1. Uh, so, uh, you know, the market is never that accommodative that, uh, it, that the consensus gets it right. Uh, so 
either it will be sooner or later, or it could be milder or it could be deeper. And my hunch is that we could wake up uh, during first quarter and realize that um, the economy all of a sudden is much weaker than we thought, and that uh, the markets um, uh, start another decline, go to new lows, and then the Fed and the FOMC gets cold feet. And, uh, and with the weak economic numbers, with the markets down almost 30%, uh, they begin to ease up on their tight policy. Th that's the working hypothesis uh, I uh, I operate with uh, at the present time. Uh, we we see a few rays of sunshine. We have uh, seen that the dollar is topping medium term or has topped medium term. I don't think it is done completely because usually in a weak economy, uh, the dollar strengthens. And if the economy weakens more into the first half of uh, next year, uh, then we should have one more medium term run up in the US dollar back to the highs or even slightly higher highs before it's, uh, it's done. Once that bull cycle in the dollar is over, I think then we are facing a multi-year decline that will be devastating for the US dollar and, and also for most other fiat currencies. And I think the other side of the coin will be a multi-year bull uh, cycle in gold. Um, I have been uh, um, neutral, hesitant, sometimes bearish on gold over the last two years. And it was a difficult time for our subscribers uh, who, who like gold. And I got a lot of criticism, uh, but Gold is not the one-way street. Uh, it uh, it is the other side of the fiat currencies, but it goes in cycles. And I think the eight-year cycle peaked in 2020, and the theoretical low is due in 24. Uh, that doesn't mean that the price low must be in 24. It could be in early 23. And I think uh, we are very close, or we are actually in a bottoming process in gold. Uh, we could deep down once again to around 1600 in the first few months of next year. But after that, I think we will see clear sailing and then go to new highs in the dollar, uh, in, in gold and down in the dollar. That, that's, how, that's how I see it. In equities, um, I'm still expecting another down leg, medium term down leg. I think we will zigzag around and go slightly higher into December um, and not in a linear or straight way, but with big zigzags and we could uh, actually uh, in the next uh, week or 10 days or so, we could have a, a, a nice dip, but I think it's not over yet. We will go a little bit higher. Uh, sentiment is coming back from deep pessimism to neutral, uh, constructive, and we'll probably go to optimism. And uh, once the uh, investors are optimistic again and the underlying fundamentals continue the way I see it, uh, that means tight monetary framework, then I think we are due for another decline. Um, and uh, my view a year ago was down about 30% for the major indices. 
We have been down 25% for the S&P. We have been down 35% for the NASDAQ 100. So we are not that far away from the low. And that's why I'm getting nervous because I know it's the later stage of the down cycle. And it's now the fine tuning over the next few months, how things will work out and uh, where I can position my subscribers long uh, for a better market in 23. 23, I think we will have a, a nice and surprising decline in inflation rates. That is due to the weak economy, due to the correction in the commodity markets, and I think also due to uh, some deflation coming out of China. So uh, import prices will decline uh, for 23, and that is probably an aberration in a new trend of rising import prices. Uh, that's a new secular trend due to deglobalization. Uh, so I think we could have a, a nice surprise in uh, inflation on the downside next year. We will then also see, or I expect at least, uh, a 10-year um, uh, treasuries to decline by uh, up to um, 150 to 200 basis points. So a big run up in bond prices decline in bond yields. And I think uh, that should trigger a decent uh, recovery uh, in the stock market. Uh, the first up leg should be led by the growth segment uh, in line with the decline in bond yields. And I think the second up leg in that um, uh, bull cycle into 24 will be led by uh, the uh, raw material related uh, uh, equities. Uh, from agricultural stuff uh, to metals, to energy, uh, to precious metals, <clears throat> the whole sector. That will be uh, the most powerful sector for the second half of the next bull run. <clears throat> if I'm correct on that hypothesis, then I think inflation will rise again from late 23 onwards. And uh, <clears throat> it will likely go higher, particularly if the Fed eases. If the Fed eases in 23, as I expect, then I think the liquidity created that becomes excess liquidity in the system flows into the <clears throat> assets that are scarce. And I think in the commodity sector, we have now weak demand, but we have relatively tight supply. And the supply, the tightness on the supply side is structural in nature, due to underinvestment and due to the ongoing conflict between East and West. And, and therefore, I could easily see uh, the oil price first going lower into, let's say, uh, middle of next year, and then rising to $150, $200 in 24. And that should bring inflation back to let's say at least 10% or, or, or probably even a little bit above in the Eurozone and in the US. And you can imagine what that means for the bond yields. Uh, bond yields will go up and then we are in real trouble. And, and we know from the 1970s, which, is, which has some similarities, but which is also uh, in many ways very different from the current situation. Uh, we know that the second run-up in inflation is the one 
that destroys the bond market. And so I'm I'm very concerned what uh, follows in the bond market in uh, 24, from late 23 on 24, 25, 26, where um, a dramatic decline in bond prices could really trigger off dramatic changes in the world because I would say by the middle of this decade, there will be no central bank with uh, positive equity. Uh, and, and that's new. You know, they can operate, they can operate with a negative equity, but the credibility of central banks will be gone. And that's new also, that's a new world. And uh, <clears throat> I think the pension fund industry will have tremendous problems to um, pay their liabilities. And there could be a huge pension crisis throughout the Western world uh, for state pensions, as well as as well as uh, private pension funds. And, and state pensions, uh, I forgot to mention, I expect uh, several nations or governments uh, to, um, uh, to become bankrupt uh, in, in this decade. So I, I think it will be a very dramatic uh, decade that we are facing with uh, huge swings in the financial markets. And I think we are in the later stages of the first cyclical decline in a big roller coaster that I see in the years to come. And I think that 23 from a low point, sometimes let's say spring uh, uh, into uh, 24 will be a great bull run again. And many will think the good old times are back, but they won't. It is um, the last, you know, it's the last few guys dancing before the music stops playing. And, and, and that's how I see it. Felix, that was I mean, just magnificent. I mean, just, a, just such a great mosaic for people to just kind of sit and, and ponder. I want to go back to a word you, you used at the very beginning of that masterful analysis of where the world stands, and that's the word normal. You, know, you talked about how the normal world is, is changing. And yeah, I'm curious because the normal world, which we've come to realize is, is a global world uh, where globalization is, is the strongest suit of every country, We've termed that normal, but that isn't how the world has always been. And I know you're a keen student of cycles. So this idea of normality ending is really just the turning of the cycle to it, the way things were before what we consider as normal. You talked about the dollar. You talked about reserve currency. So talk about how you, you go about conceptualizing a change from what's become normal. Because once you do that, once you give up on what's normal and start to entertain what's not been normal for a long time... You have to rethink everything, and that's a very difficult thing for people to do. So how, how do you go about conceptualizing these changes from one normal, which has been for half a century, to a very different normal that we've seen before, but not in most of our lifetimes? Well, during the normal periods, uh, particularly the last 30 years, you could expect that governments and central banks always bailed you out of every problem you fell into of the world in, in the world economy. And as an investor, uh, there were ups and downs, but whenever it went down, you could expect the markets will come back and eventually go to new highs. Uh, and that was sort of normal. And in this conceptualized normal environment or steady environment that was very relatively peaceful and friendly to investors, uh, you could run 
a 60-40 portfolio that became so famous. 60% equities, 40% bonds. And when uh, when stocks fell, bonds went up, et cetera, and it all balanced out. So you could be a relatively passive investor, and over the years, you could do very well. I think that game is over. Uh, I, I believe that if you continue that game, you will end up at the end of this decade with a return that will be maybe about even zero for 10 years, but in purchasing power parity, you lose a lot of your capital. And, and therefore, I do believe that if you want to preserve your capital in purchasing power parity terms, uh, then you have to play the cycles, not short-term trading or whatsoever, but you have to get bearish as I got bearish uh, late last year, and you have to turn bullish. Uh, I hope I can turn bullish uh, sometimes in the first half of next year, uh, and then turn bearish again in 24. And you have to position your portfolio accordingly. So you have to uh, do the cycle timing in your portfolio. That's the first step. The second step is the selection of assets you own uh, is also different. You cannot have a broad-based portfolio because broad-based, our economies will not do well. They will be hurt by the disrupted war like economies. You know, a war economy is an economy of scarcities. And we have scarcities of all sorts. I just needed in my home in the US, I needed a, a new um, washing machine. And, <laughs> and they said, well, the best labels, you know, 12 months waiting time. And when you go down and you go to GE, <laughs> you get six months waiting time. But that's the new world. It's scarcities. And, and it's the same in uh, for investors you have to be very careful what company you invest in because many companies uh, may lose their pricing power uh, and they may may lose their high profit margins etc uh, etc etc et so you have to be very careful where you go to and uh, and that's that's different the new normal is one where you have to be an expert in cycle timing and an expert in selecting the right asset. And, and, and let's, let's be frank, most professional portfolio managers are unable to do that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There are a few uh, dinosaurs left like me who have played the cycles uh, all their life, uh, uh, even if they shouldn't uh, at, at certain times, <laughs> but, uh, but there are not many left. But one, one thing that fascinates me is this idea of being bullish or bearish, because what that's meant for the last 20 odd years is when you say you turn bullish, you've been able to turn bullish on everything. Bonds went up, equities went up, you know, maybe commodities didn't, but you could just be bullish. And it seems to me in the world you're describing, being bullish is not going to work the same way in that if you're bullish, you have to be very, very selective about what you're bullish about and understand that there will be significant drags on your portfolio from other asset classes. So being bullish and just being long everything is no longer going to work. So, so how do people, how should they think about what a big change that is? You know, I talked about when we were, were together in Zurich last week, 
I talked about the thing that I thought people had to do, which was to, to look in the mirror and be very honest about their capabilities in a world that we're going into, which is a world very similar to the world you described. So how should people think about handling that change and that inability to just be bullish? I, I, I think you have to familiarize yourself with uh, uh, cyclical swings in markets. You have to get familiar with those things. They are normal and they are much more normal in the future than they used to be in the past. Uh, they will be more extreme. Um, I think you probably need some professional help. Uh, not that you delegate everything to a professional money manager, but you need a sounding board, uh, somebody you can discuss and check and balances. And that tells you, look, I think if you go that way, those are the pitfalls, be careful. And uh, why don't you look in the other direction over there? There is something that is intriguing and, and things like that. I, I, I do believe that uh, just doing your own thing the way you did it in the past 10 or 20 or 30 years is going to be a very dangerous road to go. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that the world has changed so much and you've laid it out so beautifully, but people need to really understand what that means in, in practical terms. You talked about the Fed and the pivot and how the market will react. It seems to me as though the focus now has been placed squarely on risk asset prices, not on the economy. You know, people are almost cheering for the economy to weaken because it means the Fed will be forced to pivot and asset prices will go up. So can you talk a little bit about what that will mean in real terms? Because when the economy does weaken and the central banks are forced to pivot, I suspect asset prices might jump in initially, but the reality of what they're going to face is not going to be the reality we've encountered in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, the one phenomenon that is uh, uh, that really strikes me is uh, the high profit margin of the US uh, corporate world. And also in Europe, it's the exception of Germany, uh, where it's different. But the rest is the corporate uh, sector has been able to really increase prices and uh, prevent, prevent margin destruction in a weaker economy. And therefore earnings held up much better than most people like me thought. Uh, I thought earnings would weaken more, but they have held up. But now what we see is there is a tremendous uh, rise in inventories. Uh, we have it, we see it in Asia, uh, we see it in Europe, uh, we see it in the US. And if demand should weaken just a little bit, it means that the inventories will eventually be cut down. And it means that orders uh, will weaken tremendously and production will weaken and and the inventory destocking will then lead to price cuts for the goods and that's very good for inflation of course but all of a sudden profit margins decline and decline much more than expected and so could earnings so that could be the real shock it's not that the economy breaks down dramatically but all of a sudden the earnings situation deteriorates much more than anybody had expected because in the last few months, everybody was amazed how well profit margins and earnings held up. 
And I think in the next six months, we will most likely see just the opposite. And, and, and if that's the case, then you get earnings being cut. And when earnings are being cut, usually you get the sell recommendations uh, by the analysts. And then you get uh, the institutions selling. And, uh, and when prices go down, everyone else is selling. And, and that's what I'm expecting. Yeah, I mean, we've already started to see the first kind of green shoots of that, or I guess yeah, red, yeah. red shoots, if you yeah. like. Yeah, um, yeah. Let, let's switch to, to geopolitics, because you, you the, the most recent piece you wrote, again, was just so fascinating from a geopolitical perspective. And you talked about how in this new normal that we're going to go into, geopolitics is going to shape markets an awful lot more than we're used to. Can, can you talk about that from a broad level? And I want to jump into a couple of um, the kind of points you identified. Uh, in how do you mean um, the overarching idea that politics and geopolitics are, are going to be a lot more important in terms of shaping financial markets? Talk about what that means, okay? And then I want to talk about a couple of the places you've identified as as potential flashpoints. Okay, let's say um, let's say Russia will certainly not, uh, um, you know, uh, stock their foreign exchange reserves as U.S. dollars in the U.S. Uh, market. And I think uh, China will most likely reduce its uh, its U.S. dollar exposure to the absolute minimum they can they can do, and uh, and uh, I think even the Middle East, uh, the OPEC countries will do likewise, and they will then look for alternatives, and the alternatives could be um, copper, it could be aluminum, it could be oil. Uh, it could be uh, grains, it could be anything. And that distorts the normal demand and supply patterns that analysts are used to look for because all of a sudden you do not get the supply that you did in the past to the marketplace. So that's why I think the commodity markets will be driven by supply factors much more than demand factors. Of course, demand is important, uh, when demand comes back a little bit and the, because the world economy stabilizes and bounces back somewhat in um, in the later 23 and 24, that helps. But the supply side, if the supply side all of a sudden begins to shrink, uh, then you have sharp moves up in those materials because in raw materials, which you need for all goods that we use in our daily life, uh, and and the manufacturers need etc. They have to buy it, and they get then scarce and tight and more expensive. This of course then feeds into prices, and we get higher inflation. And as we get higher inflation, higher inflation above wage inflation means that we get poorer. Society gets poorer. Now think about the pensions and the retirees, they get their regular pensions and all of a sudden the cost of living goes up by 10% or 8% and next year uh, uh, 6% or 5% and the next year 10% or 12%, something like that. And your pension cannot keep pace with that. It goes up maybe 2% and then all of a sudden you get cuts. That means that a broad base of your society gets poorer in a relatively short period of time. And that has implications for final demand 
on the world economy. And that feeds into what I'm saying, the demographic situation itself is already pointing down. We have a a tremendous aging in the industrialized economies and in many emerging economies as well. Um, I uh, mentioned several times the age group of 15 to 64 year olds in in OECD uh, plus uh, China, Russia, Brazil, which covers 95% of the world economy. Uh, That group used to grow 25 million per year from the early 50s to the early 90s. And then it started to come down. It it was zero uh, two or three years ago, and it's now negative, and it goes down to minus 12 million. So based on that, it is very difficult to create growth. And and economic growth is productivity growth plus demographic growth, population growth. And uh, productivity growth is, um, let's say, 1% uh, on average. In in Europe, it's a little bit less even. Uh, And that has to do with our policy of easy money and fiscal stimulus that keeps many zombie companies. They are growing in percentage terms of all of the companies outstanding uh, alive. And, And the more zombie companies you have that are really not profitable and should not be there anymore and should make room for new companies to uh, come up in Schumpeter-like style, uh, that creates a a difficult environment of less and less economic growth. And our economic system is built on growth. If we do not have the growth we need, then all sorts of liabilities out there, you know, are getting in danger of not being able to be paid. And, And that's the problem. And I think Many of those problems will pop up uh, in coming years, particularly in the second half of uh, of the decade. Felix, let me ask you specifically about Germany, because Germany has, you know, for the last 40, 50 years, been the powerhouse at the heart of Europe. And I've been shocked at how quickly Germany seems to have become, you know, some people are calling it the sick man of Europe, which amazes me the speed with which that's happened. Can you talk about how fragile Germany is and why that's important in the broader context? Well, Germany has uh, always been an economic powerhouse, um, uh, third largest, eco- third or fourth largest economy of the world, and the locomotive uh, of uh, Europe. And I think uh, they have uh, really messed up strategically. They have outsourced energy to Russia. They have outsourced defense to the U.S., and these two do are not very good friends. And uh, and their two biggest trading partners are the U.S. and China, not very close friends either. Uh, so this is a, a big problem. Then they have outsourced monetary policy to the ECB, which is much more a French and Italian monetary policy than a German one. And uh, and and so germany is not um, uh, the he- the chief of its own destiny in a way because it has done that and it exports half of its gdp of its e- economic performance is exports and and i think it's in a very difficult situation because at the same time they have turned off nuclear they you know the green party is on the green wave uh, the liberals uh, uh, have had this idea about climate, 
and um, we could we could go into climate, but I don't want to bother you with that. I think it's a wrong uh, idea. Uh, it's a wrong and extreme ideology, and they have turned off um, the nuclear power plants, and uh, they wanted to go um, renewables. And the renewable uh, alternatives are just not there uh, in the quantity they need. And therefore, they are in a deep energy crisis. And uh, and uh, they have much higher energy prices than every, every anywhere else. And, uh, you know, Europe is now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, paying about 18% um, of GDP for energy. 18% of the GDP is for energy. Uh, on average, the world economy is at seven normally. Right now, it's about at 12, which usually creates a recession. Uh, the U.S. is only at seven. Uh, so Germany has the combination of a weak currency and high energy prices priced in U.S. dollars. Uh, now, Germany has two major or three major industries. One is automobile. Uh, every third job, directly or indirectly, is really depending on the automobile industry. And the automobile industry is now being punished by um, uh, being forced going electric uh, because the EU has decided that uh, no the fuel engines uh, are uh, allowed to, to be sold from uh, 2035 on 35, or yeah. something yeah. like that something like that. So they have to make huge investments into the electrification of the automobile. Um, that needs less jobs. You know, a fuel engine is uh, up to 2,000 parts. An electric engine is 20 parts. <laughs> so that tells you uh, a lot less jobs. We see virtually every day announcements of uh, uh, subcontractors to the automobile industry of closing down or uh, or uh, chapter 11 uh, announcements and things like that. Uh, then we have uh, the machinery industry. Um, the machinery industry is important for capital goods. The capital goods cycle is weakening because the profit cycle is beginning to weaken and the outlook by CEOs is quite bearish, pessimistic, because they see all the problems where costs go up everywhere and sales stagnate or weaken. Uh, so the capital goods cycle is bad. That hurts the machinery industry. And then uh, finally, the chemical industry, which is an important industry. I think it's the third largest industry in, in Germany. Um, the president of the Chemical Association uh, said that one third of their companies will close down. They cannot uh, operate with these uh, high energy prices. And, and some of them, the large multinationals, are moving to other places where energy is cheaper and which they can get in a more reliable way. Uh, in the US, for instance, reshoring, onshoring, uh, and things like that. So everything is working against Germany. And that used to be the locomotive of Europe. Uh, so you can imagine what that means for our continent. It's it's really bad, and uh, and I think the uh, current government, uh, it's a liberal uh, government, the uh, Social Democrats and the Greens, uh, plus the Free Democrats, which should be conservative, but opportunistically have decided to go with the liberals. 
they destroy their their party. The opposition is the former Merkel party that should be conservative. But since Merkel has never been conservative, Merkel changed it in a social democratic party. So <clears throat> the only opposition they have is at the very left uh, in parliament at the, and at the very right in parliament. And both those parties are excluded from the discussion in public. Uh, the uh, state television and radio never invites those people from those parties. They are just excluded. Uh, this is what they call democracy, you, you, yeah. you see. I mean, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really messy situation. And Germany has been the big payer, net payer, uh, contributor to, to the EU. And if Germany cannot pay its dues anymore as in the past, it creates other problems within the EU. And in the EU, we know that many are there only because they get net net money out of it. If that money doesn't come, you know, their interest goes down. So I think it's a big problem for Europe. Europe will be the most dangerous and the most messy place <clears throat> economically and politically during this decade. Having a weak Germany is I say, something we're not used to. And you know, at the same time, we have the Italians and the French. Um, you know, uh, Belloni called France an enemy of Italy in, the, in recent days over the, the migration crisis. And you know, I think you made the point that France has much higher quality diplomats than the German, and they realize that they need to play both sides of this. So, so what happens to the rest of Europe? Do you see a power grab by the French, for example, to become the kind of leading voice of Europe? Uh, how, how do the, the tectonic plates in Europe move around if we do have a weak Germany? Well, you know, the problems that are there in the EU could be solved in theory by creating a political union then you do not have the stress inside the Eurozone and all that would be gone. But that will not happen because France will never integrate its, its nuclear uh, weapons into a whole of Europe, into a European army. It will never do that. Uh, France never wanted to have a United Nations of Europe. France always wanted to have a weaker Germany that doesn't make the life of the French citizens uh, difficult. And, and the tough Bundesbank and the strong Deutsche Bank did so, and they wanted to get rid of it. Uh, Macron, I must say, I think he understands the whole situation in the Ukraine and the geopolitical power play much better than any other European politician. He understands that um, the Europeans are being somewhat played by the US uh, and, and the Ukraine for the US is part of the imperial power play. Uh, they need uh, to do uh, to, uh, they say officially, we protect uh, uh, independent nations and the freedom, but it's much more than that. You know, it's, they see, the US sees that China is coming up economically and could become a threat. Uh, they are also coming up militarily, could become a threat. They are a huge number of people. Uh, they uh, have all of Asia with cheap labor. That could be the, the workplace uh, for the Eurasian continent, 
We have Russia that owns uh, all the commodities you can think of. And then you have uh, Western Europe that has, uh, or Europe that has uh, the technology. And when you put all these together, you have over 3 billion people. Uh, NAFTA is less than 450 million. So that's what the US sees. And therefore the US wanted to decouple Russia from Germany or Germany from Russia, which they did successfully so. And they do not want that this could grow into an entity, into an economic entity, because it could be too powerful and it could endanger the um, superpower status of the US to be number one. So let's talk about China then, because that is the adversary right now of the United States. That's the place they're eyeing as their main competitor. And, you know, the recent Congress in China saw President Xi cement his place, and we saw all kinds of interesting changes, which, again, you commented about in your most recent piece. So talk a little bit about your thoughts after the, the Congress, what she's done and what you think the reasons are for him doing the things he's done in the way that he's done them. You know, since she is in power, uh, he has tightened controls and he has uh, reduced uh, individual freedom. And I think he is fully aware that uh, China has some very difficult years ahead of it. And, uh, and that has to do with the exhaustion of the Chinese economy. Uh, we had the biggest uh, infrastructure, real estate boom and credit boom in, uh, in, in the history of mankind, uh, basically. And uh, it, it's very similar to what uh, Japan suffered uh, from the early 90s when that boom was over. Uh, they had 20 difficult years ahead to consolidate and restructure. And I think uh, China also has a difficult period ahead. I, I say 10 years, but it could be longer than that. Uh, they could not even finance uh, high economic growth because the banking system is unable to do so. They have uh, not enough equity capital. They have too many bad loans. They have a, a loan to deposit ratio that is far too high. So they are stretched out. They cannot do it. And, and China is uh, continues to repay US dollar denominated bank loans, short term debt. Uh, because they do not want to be dependent on the U.S. banking system. Uh, if the conflict intensifies, that could be used against them. So that's what they are doing. I think that uh, the tight COVID policy and the extreme lockdowns they are using, I think they are using that also as a camouflage not to show how weak the economy really is. You know, uh, uh, this way they can say to the world and to their own citizens, look, we have a virus problem, a health problem. We have to get rid of it. We have to be tight, uh, etc. It's all for your benefit. Uh, but in, in truth, there are other reasons uh, why the economy is not doing that well. Uh, I do not believe that they will let the economy go down. Uh, they will uh, provide support. And occasionally we will see um, uh, two or three quarters of uh, good growth, but then it's it's not sustainable. It, it falls back again, as we saw in Japan uh, during the 90s and the 10s. Uh, so it, it's the same thing. Uh, I think 
the Chinese understand that the U.S. is looking for a conflict with them because they want to hold them back. And in China, the Chinese translate that into they want trouble and they want to enter a conflict with us. You know, that's the way they see it. Uh, we may not see it that way, but that's the way the Chinese see it. So China is preparing for war. Uh, they are building up the military power. And I think uh, the uh, leadership, the Politburo, uh, was changed to eliminate all people that have certain contacts to the U.S. Uh, and, and I think you will see in the new cabinet, one, one it stands, that you will see that none of those guys has a relationship to the U.S. Uh, we know that there are Chinese business people who have good relationship to the U.S., and he cut all those back. I mean, recall Jack Ma, et cetera, and he yep. doesn't want to have those oligarchs. Uh, he learned from the Russians when the oligarchs uh, created a state in the state, and he doesn't want that. He wants to cut their power down that they have no strong influence on the economy and on the political side. And and I think uh, he's preparing for war. And, uh, and, you know, the Chinese know, I mean, they have bought so many high-ranking officials in the U.S., in Congress, and even in the White House. They own those people because all many of those people, be it the Bidens, be it the Pelosi's, be it the, the McConnells, uh, they are all in business ventures with China. So they own them. Uh, so I think China is playing a much more clever game than the US, and it's much more far-sighted and not short-sighted as, as the Western, as the Western government see it. I think they are preparing for, for trouble, economic trouble and they are preparing for uh, political trouble. And of course, they do not want to appear at the present time as a close ally of Russia. But when it comes, push comes to shove, of course, they need Russia for the commodities and the energy. And therefore, if Russia, if Putin would fall, you know, she knows he would be next. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. the West, the West wants to uh, have one world government. That's the idea uh, of some people in Washington and the people behind them. And, uh, and they dislike autocracies and therefore they want to remove autocrats. And, and therefore the autocrats of this world are moving into one camp and protect themselves against the democracies. And, and that's the big conflict there is. And we will read a lot about it in the next 10 years in the newspapers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. You know, the other place that you wrote about um, where there's stuff going on on a geopolitical basis that is going to reshape that kind of middle part of the, of the grand chessboard is in Iran. You know, we've seen a lot of significant political unrest in Iran. How do you think that that potentially shifts the balance of power in the Middle East and between um, America and the uh, the Eastern Bloc? Well, before you had the, the conflict between the Shiites and uh, the Sunnis. And, uh, and I think 
that's why Iran and Saudi Arabia were anything but good friends. And, and I think that conflict is being pushed to the back burner and Iran and Saudi Arabia are coming closer. Recently, there were rumors that, uh, you know, jets were, uh, fighting jets were flying around in Saudi Arabia. There was alarm, et cetera. And they said they are expecting attack by Iran. I think that was a false flag uh, alarm, probably by hacking uh, some operations in Saudi Arabia, but not uh, driven by Iran. I, I think Iran and Saudi Arabia will get closer. Uh, I think they will be more peaceful with each other because they are both um, uh, autocracies and, uh, and, and they will eventually need each other and they need to cooperate. Uh, the conflict inside Iran is much more difficult. I think there is a generation of potential political leaders that could take over in Iran and, and turn less fundamentalist, less orthodox, uh, Islamic orthodox, and open up somewhat inside Iran, but not turn to the Western Bloc. You know, one should not read that as to the Western Bloc. There could be a, a revolt at some point of time. Uh, Iran is uh, very important because Iran has a plane, has a plan where they could uh, close the Straits of Hormuz. And, uh, and they could put that in, in place uh, uh, anytime. And there is nothing the Western forces, the military forces could do about it as far as I am uh, informed. And that would mean that all of a sudden you have over 20 million uh, barrels of oil lacking in the uh, world oil market, uh, which of course will tell you where the price of oil will, could go in such a uh, situation. I do not expect it immediately, but if there will be more intense uh, problems and conflicts between Iran and the West, that is an option they have. Well, let me finish um, by asking you uh, a question that I, I can't really avoid asking you, given what's going on this week. And I know you're not someone who spends an awful lot of time focusing on, on cryptocurrencies. You put out a very clear sell signal on Bitcoin at 60,000 back when it reached the top. You were vocal about that. But given what's happened in the space, it's it's impossible not to just talk about this and, and the potential contagion from the bankruptcy of FTX. So when you saw that happen and you looked into it, which I'm sure you must have done, how do you see the bankruptcy of FTX and the ongoing kind of dominoes of potential bankruptcies among the bigger players in the crypto world? How do you see that, if at all, kind of leaking into conventional finance and what damage could that cause? I think it does a lot of damage to the crypto world uh, because for the crypto world, it's like um, a Madoff uh, case. And the Madoff case, you had a lot of or most hedge funds that are supervised and regulated and are doing a, a decent business, uh, whereas you had one, one uh, guy who lied and uh, it was a fraud. And in the crypto world, it's different. Hedge funds were already, um, um, you know, part of the, of the financial society, accepted in the financial society. The crypto world is still uh, debatable whether it is something to stay or whether it is a fad that will disappear again. I do not know the answer. 
uh, I think at the beginning, it was very attractive to see um, a, a store of value that is limited, a currency that is limited, unlike the fiat currencies. That was attractive, but all of a sudden you had over 10,000 different uh, cryptos. So there was no limitations at all. Uh, and and now you have we have seen many type of frauds, but this was this was by far the worst. And uh, I always say, be careful when a, a financial whiskey all of a sudden gets rich uh, in a in a short period of time and is on stage with Hollywood celebrities and leading politicians, etc. That's always a bad sign. That's always smells of fraud and trouble. Uh, so I think it could be it could be the washout uh, for the cryptocurrency in this cycle. Uh, so I think once the liquidity cycle turns, and it will turn in 23 in my view, um, once it does, it will also turn positive for the crypto world. And cryptocurrencies will then rally strongly. Uh, whether they will go to new highs or back to the highs, that's questionable. I I doubt. Uh, I think it was a very devastating down cycle for the crypto investors. Very devastating, and um, and and the test to stay there as an alternative to preserve your capital. The jury is still out. I have my doubts. Um, I think it's a speculative asset that can be used, but I would not use it as a place uh, for preservation of capital. I would use it as a as a um, asset to speculate with uh, and play with, but not as a preservation of capital. As I would gold, for instance. I think gold has has um, lived through the test of time. For thousands of years, and and it will it will remain there, uh, and it will protect you against the debasement of fiat currencies. Uh, that test is still out there for the crypto world. So, but you know, being down from over sixty thousand to uh, to fifteen sixteen thousand yeah. in in Bitcoin, uh, a lot has happened. It's down seventy five percent, and. Uh, it's not the time to be bearish about. Uh, I, I think you probably need uh, uh, patience uh, for another few months. Uh, and when the liquidity cycle turns, uh, cryptos could start a recovery. Great. Well, listen, you, you mentioned gold. I'm going to ask you one final question, if I can, before we wrap up. And that's, you mentioned gold there. And I know that you, you've become bullish on gold. And, and over the longer term, you know, if we look past the kind of ups and downs of the roller coaster between here and 2025, it feels as though... You know, your call is for longer-term commodities and precious metals to be the kind of the, the places to look. So, when you look at gold, silver, and base commodities, which ones do you think potentially offer the best kind of risk-reward perspective if you're a long-term investor? You know, gold I have uh, the most faith in uh, because it's time-tested uh, over uh, ages. Um, silver, I think, will outperform gold. Uh, most likely, and and probably to a large degree. So silver could be more attractive, but it has a, a speculative touch because silver is an industrial metal and not a monetary asset. Gold is a monetary asset, silver is not. And that's the difference. But I think you can use both. 
Uh, I think palladium where Russia produces maybe 40% or so uh, of the world supply uh, could also be attractive. Everything that the other side in the geopolitical game, the Eastern side produces to a large percentage could be in favor because the supply from that sort, from that side will be scarce, you see, and therefore it could be quite attractive. Nickel, nickel is another uh, metal that could be quite attractive where Russia produces uh, 50% or, or even more. Yeah. Fantastic. Felix, it's been a breathtaking trip around the world. And, um, you know, as always, I feel so privileged to get a chance to pick your brain on, on the bigger picture and how these things all fit together. So, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with me. It's, it's a real pleasure every time I get to do it. It's, it was great to see you last week. Uh, I wish you a happy end of year and all the best for 2023. And hopefully we can get together and have another chat at some point during that. So thanks very much indeed. Well, thank you very much, Grant, for having me. And it's always uh, great to talk to you and uh, all the best uh, for you for the future. And uh, take care, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye, Felix. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I have to say, um, every time I get the chance to speak to Felix, I am left with so much to think about. He really is just such a brilliant aggregator of information and his cycle work enables him to put together incredibly compelling roadmaps for how he sees the future unfolding. And I, I think the one thing that's clear from that conversation as we talked about this change from what's become normal to something that's very abnormal is that you are really going to have to think the way Felix does. You're going to have to think about prices of all different asset classes going up and down in tandem at the same time instead of everything going up at one time and down in one time depending on liquidity injection so uh, there were plenty of lessons in there i think um, the way felix thinks is incredibly important and the advice he gives about the way to think about this new world we're into i think is something that we all need to spend an awful lot of time thinking about and assessing how we're going to face and deal with a set of very, very different challenges to those that we've come to uh, experience over the last, well, many decades, and for most of us, our entire careers. So my thanks to Felix, as always, for giving up his precious time to share his thoughts with us. You can find out more about what Felix does uh, if you go to his website, which is felixzulauf.com. Zulauf Consulting, everything you'll need to know is, uh, is on that page. If you have any inquiries, reach out to jennifer at bluefoxadvisors.com and she'll be able to give you much more information about what Felix does, his services and the various things he offers. And as I said, I suspect that Felix Zulauf is going to be an absolutely invaluable resource going forward as he has been in the past, but with extra poignancy. That's all from me for another week. I thank you for listening. I'll be back again with another conversation soon. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.